actually woke up this morning and decided to live my life as RuPaul. Before we get started on this episode today, I wanted to hop on and share a little bit of a milestone announcement. I have a new microphone. This microphone is way better equipment than what I had been using up until this point. I'd been using different things. Things had been failing me. I have, oh, I can make an entirely different podcast about all the ways in which I've had tech trouble trying to start this podcast. But alas, my new microphone has arrived and hopefully from here on out, we don't face any more tech issues and I really hope that you guys can see the difference in audio quality and you appreciate it as much as I do. <laughs> you thought I was done? No. See, that was old editing, Jordan. This is new editing, Jordan. I did record with my new equipment. However, I do not have a recording studio, which means I rely on both good equipment as well as good editing software to get rid of that large echo sounds that happen when you record in a very large space. And about halfway through editing this episode, I lost the software from my laptop which was a little bit of an unwanted and surprising dilemma that I had to face. So I ended up having to use GarageBand for today's episode, which kind of ruins the whole purpose of having very good equipment. You do still hear an echo, but I have had the software reinstalled back on my laptop. But you have my word. Season three, we are coming back with great audio quality. With that being said, it's time to get today's episode started, featuring my good friend Josh Couliard. So my name is Jordan Preston, this is Back of the Class Podcast, and if A, Jesus walked on water, and B, I read Don't Ask Me Where or Don't Ask Me When, I read it, but I did read it, that there is a certain type of tiny lizard that walks on water, then C, that tiny little lizard must be Jesus. Excuse me, class. <laughs> Joining me at the back of the class today is Josh Couillard. Hi, Josh. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm just doing dandy. I'm, you know, I've said dandy a lot. I need to come up with a new response for people because dandy's a little too niche to keep repeating. I'm doing super califragilistic expialidocious today. Are you really doing good, or is that just your, like, that's how you respond to people? That's kind of just how I respond to people. <laughs> Do you want to share your real feelings? Um, Just stress with school, the norm. Stress. That's a good foreshadowing for this episode right there. Stress. Keep that in mind. So, Josh, you're away at university right now. You're at Queens studying what? Engineering. Engineering, big brain, big business brain man. Big brain. Engineering has nothing to do with business, but it's just, like... The brain, the business is the brain. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I think that's a good way. I have no clue what engineering is because everyone's in it and they all talk about math. But I thought engineering was like welding, like um, with the fire things and the things that go over your face. And it's like engineer and you're like welding things. <laughs> that's more of like a that's more just welding. Like that's its own oh. trade. Oh, OK, you know, cool. You go to trade school to learn how to weld. You go to engineer school to learn how to have math in your nightmares yeah pretty much engineering is kind of just like the design of you know structures mechanical systems that sort of thing of uh, fire and face shields for welding are there sure. engineers yeah. for welding are there yeah, welding there engineers yeah you should go into that i can see it where do you sit in the class usually at the back 
I don't know. I'm I'm kind of one of those kids that just likes to sort of just hide. I, I'd hate it when teachers would call on me, that sort of thing. So I'd sort of just hide in the back, come in late, sneak in. Well, we have the interesting um, friendship where we became friends in grade 11, and I was convinced I didn't know who you were until the day that I met you, until someone pointed out to me that I sat two seats next to you in grade 9 math. So I think that really goes to show that you you have a talent in hiding, yeah. which is a good thing. I know lots of people who are like, you. that's a talent. That's a talent yeah. that I had no clue that I sat two seats next to you. I was like, there, were, there was just Griffin, right? And someone was like, no, it was Griffin, and then it was Josh. And I was like, no, I'm pretty sure it was just Griffin. I don't remember there being another table there. But apparently you were sitting at it. So there you go. Pretty good at a back of class student. Very good at it. So being a student, I obviously know you took math because of grade nine and you do math and engineering. But in terms of other subjects, what's your experience with philosophy? I have none. Mm. You know, besides like hearing things here and there from friends or just like random videos that would pop up online. um, I don't really know that much about philosophy. If you could describe philosophy in one sentence, do it now. Okay. Um, wow, this is really hard. <laughs> the mm, I don't know. Every time I think of philosophy, I sort of just think of like people asking, "What is the meaning of life?" Mm-hmm. Um, that is but very I, spot on, right there. <laughs> I think a better definition of it would probably be the analysis of like what it is to be like living, or just it's analysis of like how you're living. Good one. Good one. I appreciate Something like that. Honestly, you just gave a really good definition for the season that we are recording for right now, which is metaphysics, because metaphysics is basically analysis of reality and life and how we as humans exist in the world. Philosophy as a whole, I'd say analysis, period. It's just like, let's talk and think about things that probably don't need so much thought but let's do it anyways you know because what else do we have to do with our lives that's philosophy as a whole you gave a great definition of metaphysics and we've already discussed in previous episodes things in terms of metaphysics like free will like determinism and now today we will be discussing existentialism big words big words i always say existentialism and some people get really upset with me because it sounds like i'm saying eggs but to those people i say fuck you because (laughs) i don't care and you know what i'm talking about anyways because no word sounds like existentialism yeah you can't get it confused with anything i feel like existentialism is one of those words that a lot of people have heard but don't really know what it is like I, I feel like I heard that a long time ago before I realized what it actually was. And like, I still don't really know what it is because I'm not that into philosophy. I think that the word existential, yeah, like you hear it like even as a kid not knowing what it means because people say like they're having an existential crisis. Lots of people use that interchangeably with like midlife crisis, which is questionable. I feel like they're two different things. Maybe they're the same for some, but you know, existential crisis, I'd say is very well known, even if people don't really understand fully what that means. But that's why we're talking today. We are getting into it. We are taking things apart and building it back up together again, just like engineers do in welding. (laughs) Engineers are not just welders. 
So you said you've heard the word existentialism before and you get the gist. Give me your gist. I'm just going to ask you for, but you know, before I start any sentence, I'm just going to say, define this for me. That's what this whole episode's going to be. All right. So define existentialism, Josh. This definitely isn't right and it's very bare, but from my understanding, it's sort of just like, uh, like you're, you're diving into like, what is the meaning of doing things? You know, what's the point of it? Good one. Existentialism is the philosophical theory that emphasizes existence, freedom, and choice. So it's a lot larger. It's a bigger theory that has a lot of different subsections than people usually give credit for. It's like a lot of stuff about existing, freedom, and choice. But in order to look at existentialism, we need to start at the very beginning with a guy called Frederick Nietzsche, Uh. whose name is spelt so stupidly, might I add. And I'm not even talking about his last name, which has a T-Z-S-C-H in it. I'm talking about his name, Frederick, spelt F-R-I-E-D-R-I-C-H. <laughs> this man's name is Fried Rich. Oh I know he's God, German. Like... I know he's German, but like re- they really had to butcher the name Fred. <laughs> Moving on, whatever. Frederick Nietzsche. He's a German philosopher of the 1800s, and he is most well-known for being the guy that decided God was dead, and also for a philosophy called uh, nihilism. Ooh. So some interesting history for you. After his death, his sister, Elizabeth, spelt perfectly okay. So clearly they're not dyslexic. They have no excuse because Elizabeth is spelt right. Anyways, she became the curator and editor of all of his manuscripts. So she edited his unpublished writings to fit her own ideologies. ideologies. And after publishing her versions of his writing... Nietzsche's work became associated with fascism and Nazis. Wow. Which I said very positively, but it's gonna, the story is going to get better, so don't worry, guys. Um, 20th century scholars took a lot of issue with that because Nietzsche had already written and published work while he was alive that were very opposed to anti-Semitism and nationalism. So there was evidence that he was not fascist, nationalist, or anti-Semitic. So corrected editions of his writing was then made available, And then it led the way for renewed popularity of his work in the 1960s until now, where everyone on TikTok is just like, nihilist, nihilism. Like, I feel, maybe I'm just on a different algorithm than everyone else. Yeah, I don't know what your For You page is. (laughs) If anyone had seen things on TikTok, he, in fact, was not a Nazi, just to clear that up. So, like I said before, Nietzsche announced many times that God is dead and that we were the ones that killed him. So the sentiment isn't important because it sounds like it's the first atheist to ever exist, which it does sound like, but it's important on a much deeper level because God had served as the basis for meaning and life value for more than like 10 trillion years. And with God dead, it meant that nothing had any inherent importance and that life lacked a purpose. This was nihilism. It was just like God is dead and life sucks and there's nothing we can do about it. Right. So while Nietzsche was a nihilist and believed that life had no meaning, he was also very vocal about his hatred of nihilism, and he emphasized the danger of it, saying, and I quote, I believe it is one of the greatest crises, a moment of the deepest self-reflection of humanity. According to him, only when nihilism was overcome could a culture have a true foundation and be able to thrive. Right. 
with me so far? Yeah. God is dead. Everything sucks. And then he dies and he's a Nazi, but he's not a Nazi. And that's where we're at so far in history. Woohoo. And that's a popular quote, isn't it? What? Which one? Like, God I is feel dead? like I've heard God is dead and like we killed him. Yeah, that's, yeah. Oh, that's Nietzsche right there. He was just like, God is dead. And then he kept saying it until people listened. And then they were like, what do you mean? Go- who killed him? And then he released God is dead and we killed him. And they were like, wow, now it makes sense. Just like, what? I don't even know that. But you know, that is a very famous quote. Yes. Yeah. It doesn't shock me that you've seen that, but also there's a part of me that's like, in what context, why does that quote come up in life ever? Unless you're in a philosophy class. The internet is a strange place. Like that's all I, that's the only like response I have to that. So lucky for him, about 40 years after he died, some new guy came up with the solution. And that guy's name is Jean-Paul Sartre. Sartre was a French philosopher who used Nietzsche's nihilism to overcome it, becoming one of the most major founding influences on what we now call existentialism. Yay! This is actually a really good fun fact because it perfectly describes philosophers in general. In 1964, so like 64, pretty recent, 1964, he won the Nobel Prize in Literature but he kept trying to refuse it, saying that he always declined official honors and that a writer should not allow himself to be turned into an institution. Okay. This perfectly describes philosophers because as the lovely Will Silverman once said on a previous episode, they are pretentious little fuckers. They spend their entire lives trying to get people's attention and then when they're rewarded for it, they're like, I don't think anyone should ever get attention ever or praise. It's bad. Spent a long time in the public being like, listen to me, listen to me. And then when they were finally like, hey, you have good stuff to say. He's like, well, that's wrong. You're wrong there. So anyways, that's his little fun fact. He technically won the prize but i don't even know if he ever actually took it or showed up to the event or you know i don't, I don't know how the nobel thing even works like is it a is it a place what is it like <laughs> it's a prize like is it like a title or is it like a ceremony yeah there's a ceremony yeah so i just think that he didn't show up someone had to stand up there and like do his speech for him like make one up when that happens when like celebrities don't go to the award shows um <laughs> I think it's a little different. (laughs) So here's the thing about Sartre. Sometimes he sounds really emo. For example, he kind of stated, this is just paraphrase, that the fact that we are born and living is sadly not up to us. Literally, he was like, it it sucks because we don't get to choose that. And he complains about how horrible it is that once we become self-aware, we're forced to make choices that define our essence. So in other words, essence would mean life. So he basically spent a little bit of time in his academic career being like, you know what sucks? The fact that no one asked me if I wanted to be conceived. Like, yeah, which is like, okay, relatable, but also get over it. You're here. We all are. (laughs) So that's kind of where it all stemmed from, right? He said, I hate that even though we are born, if I'm going to get over that, okay, I'm here, whatever. But then not only that, you didn't give me a choice of whether I wanted to be alive. Now you're telling me I have to make my own choices. And that sucks because our choices define our essence. So one of the most famous existentialist quotes would be one of Sartre's saying, existence precedes essence, meaning we must first exist and act and make choices in order to create meaning. It's not the other way around. It's not meaning. And then we make choices. It's we make choices and then there is meaning. Does that make sense? Kind of. Like, do you walk through life being like, my purpose is to be a welder, so I'm going to 
weld things and then you make choices to weld things or do you walk through life and you're like I'm going to weld things and then from there you're like oh the purpose of my life is to be a welder okay so I sort of get that so his opinion is that action comes before meaning because we're talking about meaning of life like you said okay yeah when examining existentialism the importance of an individual's choices is really stressed upon Not only is the freedom of the choice emphasized, so like I have the freedom to choose to weld or I have the freedom to choose not to weld, but it's also that existentialism forces a new sense of responsibility and accountability to free people and the choices they make. So the fact that we feel the need to define ourselves and our life, along with the fact that the job of defining ourselves is our job alone, in addition to the fact that we live in a world that we don't fully understand, with an infinite number of choices to choose from, suggests that life naturally carries with it an incredible burden of responsibility. A big thing in existentialism is this idea of responsibility and the anguish that comes along with that. We touched on quickly before, existential crisis, really well known. Right. When I say existential crisis, what is the picture that is painted in your mind? Because mine is very cartoony. You kind of already touched on this, but just from like growing up and hearing it, I've kind of just associated it with like the same thing as a midlife crisis. That, that's what I picture. Yeah, I picture like an old man with a bad haircut and a new car and like things are on fire around him. And he's like, I don't know what I've done with the past 50 years of my life. Here I am. Okay, yeah. I, I picture I picture a movie about someone going through a midlife crisis. <laughs> I'd watch that movie. I can't think of a movie that does that, but I'd watch it. Yeah. If you engineered that, I'd watch it. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> so a person who experiences an existential experience, which is commonly confused with existential crises would find themselves overwhelmed with questions regarding the meaning of life in general, as well as the purpose or value that their individual life may have. An existential experience is meant to bring you somewhere, though, to some sort of conclusion about how to move forward in life. So when experienced successfully, a person can enter a state of existential bliss. The experience as a whole can be very powerful and very positive, whereas an existential crisis, on the other hand, is never positive. It's like a a bald guy with a new car. Okay. So an individual who experiences an existential crisis is swallowed whole by deep thoughts and questions and is overwhelmed with the many variables or outcomes of the possible answers to those questions. Do you think you've ever gone through an existential experience? There's a possibility I might have and not like known what it was at the time. Okay, great. Can you answer my question again, but this time say no? Sure. Wait, so this is all fake? Yes, say no. (laughs) No, I I, I can't think of an experience. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I'm actually going to convince you otherwise right now. Okay. You don't need to live through a war to face an existential experience. People living ordinary lives like you, like all the engineers and welders out there in the world, find themselves often haunted by weighty philosophical questions. There was a study done by John Hopkins University. Now, I think this study's not that modern, so don't hate on me for that, because it was in Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, which is kind of from a little bit. But whatever, it was a study done, and we're treating it as such, where they asked participants 
what do you consider very important in life? And 78% answered finding a purpose and having meaning. That's existentialism right there in that 78% of participants. Lots of people experience an existential experience, which can be very good. And we're going to get into specifically the symptoms of an existential experience. A big aspect to existentialism is this idea of suffering, which is just so fun, guys. Party time, suffering. Jean-Paul Sartre believed that human beings live in constant anguish. Yes, because life is miserable, obviously, but more so because humans are, and I quote, condemned to be free. So through the lens of existentialism, it's considered part of the human condition to struggle and to suffer. A great example of this would be Hamlet. Okay. Okay. The the Shakespeare thing. I've blocked that out. Yeah, I know what what it is. I've blocked it out. Did you read Hamlet? Like, were you supposed to read Hamlet is my question? I I don't even... No, I don't think I read Hamlet. Oh, okay. So I'm just going to basically spoil Hamlet for you, but I don't think you'll be reading it anytime soon. So the first scene of Act 3 in Hamlet features one of Shakespeare's most famous soliloquies, To Be or Not To Be, which is essentially Hamlet asking himself whether a life of pain is a life worth living. This is all about suffering. Humans are meant to suffer. That is the existentialist thought. It's not like, why am I suffering? It's the complete opposite of a victim mentality because everyone is victim and it has to be that way. Speaking of Hamlet, while we're on the subject, hey, turning into an English (laughs) podcast, many scholars and theater fanatics have come to the agreement that Shakespeare himself was an existentialist. So let me just pull more scenes for you, really give you all the highlights here. In Act 4, Scene 3, Hamlet explains how, as humans, we spend our lives fattening up animals to feed ourselves, and how, in turn, we are fattening ourselves for the worms who eat us when we're dead. Prince Hamlet is describing what could be seen as the human life cycle. Just putting this out there, do worms actually eat us when we're dead? Yes. Like, it's it's not worms alone, but but yes, I believe so. Like, like once we decompose a little bit. But, like, can they not? I mean... like. I think they could not. I don't like to think of worms as cannivores. Cannivores. I don't like to think that way. I like to think of them as as vegan. So for the purpose of the argument, I will say that they are cannivores. Um, Carnivores. Yeah, cannivores. So, um, Can of worms. <laughs> in this example, and this is kind of the beginning of his whole obsession over death. Many existentialists treat death in a much more factual way than our sensitivity-fueled society is used to, right? Like, we talk about death and we try to be, like, empathetic towards the subject itself, as if the subject has feelings of its own. But existentialists say, death is death. Like, get over it. It's one of the, like, it is one of the most lame and mundane things to happen in life to an existentialist. Aristotle, the father of Western philosophy, he may not have strictly been an existentialist because the word wasn't even like coined yet, but he did speak of death in a very similar fashion. He never offered cheerful optimism um, that some may have wanted to hear, but instead he said that death is like a surface level fact and that it's the most fearful thing, but that fear is made up of irrational subjectivity anyways. So what's the point of fearing it? The existentialist community at large believes that you must face immortality in its definitive nature in order to live a worthy life. 
Why does it say immortality? Hold on. Back up. Yeah, wait. Can you define? Hold on. I'm wondering if this is my notes mistake or if this is like actually what's written and I have to really think about this. My note says the existential community at large believes that you must face immortality in its definitive nature in order to live a worthy life. It should be mortality, Mm. isn't it? Yeah, it should be mortality. The existentialist community at large believes that you must face mortality in its definitive nature in order to live a worthy life. Right, like we're talking about facing death, not not trying to live forever. Which poses the question, all the people, and maybe I don't know how much you know about this, but I have read basically an entire book on it, about the people who are like really rich right now and how they're in the process of like creating things to help them live longer slash be like... Not immortal, but amortal. Do you know the difference between immortal and amortal? No, but I I understand what you're talking about. Immortality, for the listeners at home, immortality (sighs) would be what we all think it is. It's like not dying. Gods are immortal, right? When we we talk about gods. And then amortal would be having no natural expiration date, but that doesn't mean that things can't kill us. I could still get hit by a car, but I don't have a... Uh, death awaiting me naturally whereas immortal you can't die period okay yeah, yeah okay i understand so this whole thing right now going on that's been going on since like early 2000s of these people trying to basically be immortal doesn't sound like they're gonna live a worthy life if uh they don't face mortality in its definitive nature well i mean actually if you think about it humans have kind of faced this for a lot longer for a long time, people have been trying to, like, cure diseases, and the, the end goal has just been to live longer. Yes. But then it's like, at to what end? Like, Elon Musk is apparently high up in... Elon Musk has come forward saying, I want to live forever. Right. This man is clearly either never I mean, gone through an existentialist <laughs> crisis, or he went through it and did not come out the right way. He also named his son after a barcode, so... That is very true. So maybe he's not, not someone we need to be basing things off of. So at the end of the day, death. It happens. Get over it. That's what all the existentialists want you to understand. And then we look at another aspect of existentialism, which is isolation, which is a feeling we understand all too well right now at this given moment. Yep. So when looking at existential experiences, it is not uncommon for one to feel as if they are participating in a life other than their own, or they feel unpresent, as if they're observing their life from a distance. It's kind of the most relatable of all of the symptoms. And it's, I, you know, not to treat this like my own therapy, but I can recall numerous times in the past month in which I felt like I'm observing my life from outside of my body. <laughs> like it just, it's so easy right now to feel routine with still nothing to do. But after going through an existential experience, a person can either arrive at existential bliss and happiness while others may move forward as an absurdist with no ethical compass. What is absurdism, you ask? Good question, Josh. What is absurdism? So absurdism. Albert Camus was a French philosopher who lived within the same time period as Sartre in the early 1900s, and he founded the philosophy of absurdism. It's exactly what it sounds like. It's how absurd it is that humans try to find meaning in life while existing in a meaningless universe. And when someone realizes how absurd life is, they have two options. Really, according to him, they had three options. But one of the options was suicide, which he paints in a way that doesn't reflect our understanding of modern mental health. So I will politely be skipping over that. 
They have two options. Okay. An individual can either take a leap of faith or face recognition. So a person who takes a leap of faith, sounds fun taking a leap of faith. That's like what every life career coach tells you. Like, take yeah. a leap of faith. I want to go bungee jumping. Mm, oh, it's not. Okay. No, never mind. Apparently not. It is not it. So a person who takes a leap of faith would act absurd and discard any notion of rationale or morals. They go through life with no expectations, but reject using any sort of reason or logic in order to live. Like, we're talking absolute chaos. Okay, so give me an example. Okay, this is a fictional example, but it's not... Yeah. Like, you would have never met this person, but I'm getting it, actually, from one of Sartre's written works. And it's based in a time of war. And there's a prisoner of war, and he's told that he's going to be shot in the morning. So he's going through an existential experience. And after going through the existential experience and realizing how absurd life is and that none of it makes any sense, the next day when something happens, something goes wrong and he's not killed, he is like, what do I do with, because he accepted death. And then he was like, wait, I'm not going to die. He's like, what do I do with my life now? And then he like stabbed a person, took off his clothes and just started like running and yelling gibberish. Like that's what he means by take a leap of faith is literally like, Life is absurd. So am I. Fuck the rules. Fuck society. I'm my own person now. I think I've heard of that happening with cancer patients. Really? Where they sort of, they go through this process of just like accepting the fact that they're going to die. And then, I mean, miracles happen all the time, whether Mm -hmm. you want to call them miracles or not. But for whatever reason, they end up, the cancer goes into remission or whatever. And then they sort of go through this process where they're like, well, I already just like, I had set myself up to like only live for another six months Mm -hmm. and now I have nothing left like I quit my job I like traveled the world did whatever and now they're sort of stuck in this state of like what do I do now yeah it's a much less extreme because obviously they're not stabbing people no but it's like a good example you know because if anything that's I mean the world was very different back then yes and you know people aren't really like just hey you're gonna be executed tomorrow a good example of taking a leap of faith in that scenario wouldn't be that they, you know, quit their job, spent all their money, and then found out. It would be like, I live my life normally. But then, like, they found out that they were going to survive, and then they spent all their money. That's what taking a leap of faith is. Okay, yeah, yeah. So either people can take a leap of faith and be absurd in an absurd world, or use the second option, which is recognition. So recognition would mean that a person chooses to embrace the absurd condition, but not physically be absurd themselves. So in order to live freely and have the opportunity to give meaning to life, then you must first recognize that life has no inherent meaning, and it's supremely absurd. So acknowledging this absurdity of seeking meaning, but still continuing to search for it regardless, is the only way a person can be happy and also free. Hmm. existentialism is the view that humans define their own meaning in life and try to make rational decisions despite existing in an irrational universe it grapples topics such as nothingness and absurdity as well as the responsibility and anguish that it all brings along with it so it's concepts of detachment of choices um they're all relevant in existentialism and despite the fact that in like the 1970s, existentialism had basically become a cliche that people often associated with Woody Allen, <laughs> I believe it is still extremely relevant today. And one of my favorite quotes by Sartre is, everything has been figured out except how to live. That's a good quote. Little tiny claps. Little tiny claps for Sartre right there. A little golf clap. 
So I have a question and mm-hmm. a comment. Mm-hmm. Double whammy. Well, two questions and a comment. Oh, my God. That's like three. <laughs> I know. Oh, my God. That's crazy. <laughs> the The first thing is, this is all, it, to me, it seems dark, hmm. right? Like, a lot of the conclusions that seem to come from this is like, there's, like, I hear all this, and it just sounds like someone saying there is no meaning to life. Right. So then my my question to that is like, what is the mental state of philosophers? Like, are they usually mentally sane (laughs) or are are they seen as sort of just like, like, do they usually have a lot of because I I feel like. (laughs) No. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, I just mean. I get the question. I get the question. I have a couple of kind of counter questions slash answers slash whatnot. Um, firstly, on the topic of mentally sane, really depends on what you define as mentally sane. Like, are they neurotypical? (laughs) Absolutely not. I will go to my grave saying any philosopher doesn't, is not neurotypical, does not have a neurotypical brain. They, they are atypical. Yeah. 100%. And then when it comes to mental health wise, because that's just like, usually when people use like neurotypical slash neuroatypical, it's more so in the realm of like deficit disability, like gifted uh, specialty which they have all i'm sure like i'm pretty sure every philosopher has (laughs) so many jacked up things in their brain um to be proud of clearly because they gave us this work mentally wise i think if you asked them they'd be like to society standards i'm fucked up yeah but the true question is like what is everything that we can talk about modern wise like if we want to just focus on one depression even though a lot of existentialism sounds very depressing. Mm-hmm. I don't think any existentialist actually has depression, not even as a diagnosis, I mean as a feeling. I don't think they face, when they talk about anguish and dread, they're only able to talk about it because they got through it because they're talking about the experience. Now you can come out on the other end or they're talking out about it from such a detached point of view where like even Nietzsche, where he was like, I understand that there's nihilism, but I hate nihilism. Like, he didn't seem that emotionally affected by it in all of his years of writing and speaking and whatever. Like, he d- he appeared very sane in his way of being like, God is dead, and it sucks, and it sucks for the rest of you. So it's, like, a very thin line between they're, like, really off their rocker, but in the same way they don't experience the things that we might think someone would, ex- would struggle with mental health-wise. Okay. I don't think an existentialist actually faces daily anxiety they like maybe they had at one point but like but they've come to terms with it yeah exactly and then another right. thing is your comment on um it all seems very dark i didn't focus a lot on it maybe i should have maybe i'm just too cynical and i just forgot to include the more positive <laughs> parts but there's i did say it a couple times but like if done right which no one can be you know, ridiculed for going through an existential crisis and doing it wrong. But just saying, if done right, it can have extremely positive effects on your life, which is why we have something called existential psychotherapy. Uh, Psychotherapy sounds scary, but psychotherapy is just therapy. Like a lot of therapists are technically psychotherapists. Existential psychotherapy is a, it's a form of therapy that lots of therapists use which is when they see that someone is going through things that show symptoms of existentialist experiences, they don't bring it up. They don't tell their patients, hey, I'm going to be putting you through existential psychotherapy. It's just a 
thing that they know how to use in a format. So when they see that someone's being like, I don't know the meaning of my life, and they could be so vague like that, but any sort of symptoms, I feel really isolated from people. I feel like I suffer and everyone around me suffers and I don't know what to do about it. A lot of the whole thing with existential psychotherapy is that the therapist is there to help that person reach existential bliss and ensure that they don't end up in the like very dark life has no meaning. Because really existentialism says, yeah, life has no intrinsic meaning, but as humans, we apply our own meaning to life. And by doing that, we can be really happy by using existential psychotherapy. The therapist helps people figure out their meaning of life, even though you have to accept that life has no meaning. Your meaning of life is whatever you assign it to be. And once you accept that life has no meaning, that doesn't sound that sad. My last question was just sort of, it went back to the topic of death. Mm-hmm. Which is, of course, another dark one. <laughs> so you had mentioned how existentialists sort of look at it more as like a black and white fact. Mm-hmm. Like you are going to die. Yeah. How would you like differentiate that from let's say, an atheist who just doesn't believe that there's anything after death, right? Because I've always sort of just looked at death as something that happens, but I wouldn't define myself as an existentialist. Yeah. It's more just like, I don't, like, it it just happens, right? I think it's a minute difference. I think you touched on something there. Like, there is a very faint difference. But I think I do see a difference in the fact that existentialists say nothing happens after life. Death is a fact. Everyone dies. And so do atheists. They say death is a fact. Everyone dies and nothing happens afterwards. But existentialists have the additional focus of don't be afraid of death. Okay. There may be atheists who aren't afraid of death. If anything, lots of atheists are more afraid of death than believers in heaven right because lots of people are so blissfully waiting for their place up in the clouds and atheists who have come to the conclusion that there's nothing afterwards are like well fuck that sounds terrifying it's just just over right so yeah i think that's the difference is that they both have the same idea except um in addition existentialists are like with all that in mind there's nothing to be scared of yeah how did you enjoy the conversation? I, I really I really enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. Legitimately? Yeah, no, legitimately. Like, I, I feel like this is going to haunt me one day at midnight. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> when I'm, like, trying to fall asleep. Yeah, that's the best form I'm of gonna enjoyment. I'm going to be like, wow, there is no meaning. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's okay. Just call me up. I can do some uh, existential psychotherapy on you. Because, fun fact, my mom is in school to be a therapist, and I did read the part of the textbook that was about existential psychotherapy. So I'm fully equipped. I'm basically part of the APA therapist organization. So just call me up if you ever need help with that. If any of you ever need help with that, just tweet me. We could do some good therapy sessions online. Um, I think this was a great conversation. Totally positive. Totally party ready. But the truth is that existentialism is something we all face, and it can be good once you get through it. Now, would you label yourself as an existentialist? I... Or is there, like, a point of view that you, like, relate to? I would label myself as an existentialist. Like, I would label myself as an absurdist. The issue is that some people within the academic community don't know. It's actually not decided whether absurdist means, like, the leap of faith versus the recognition, because it's kind of all of the above. So when you say someone's an absurdist, people Mm -hmm. kind of think leap of faith. I'm not leap of faith. Stab, stab. I'm not stab, stab, man. I'm not stab, stab, take your clothes off and run around speaking gibberish. But there is 
I'm existentialist and I have a very close connection to the idea of absurdity. I understand and enjoy the idea that we are existing in an irrational universe, but we still have to make rational choices. I just like that. Like that, I can't explain the feeling that it gives me internally, but it just like, it, it feels like when you put like a last piece of a puzzle into place, it's like, yes, that makes sense. And I'm happy sticking by that logic. Would you consider yourself an existentialist? I definitely relate to some parts of it. Mm -hmm. Like the death. Death is one of those things that I, I don't want to say I've come to terms with it because I'm not expecting to die soon, but I sort of have. You can come to terms with like dying in 8 million years. Like I've come to terms with the fact that because I'm so competitive and stubborn, I will be outliving my relatives. (laughs) Like not, okay, let me like make this make sense. My great grandfather died at the age of 101. And my family is very competitive. So I'm thinking my grandma's going to live to at least 102. And I have to, therefore, if my dad doesn't make it to 103, which I bet he will, I have to live to 104. Like, I, it's just, that's just how it is. Because we don't want to live forever. We just, we're just stubborn. We're like, I want to live to 104. So be it. Yeah. Accept it. So I've accepted death at a very late age for me because competition. Yeah. Which I think is fair. I'm way more scared of how I die than when I die. Not scared. I, I'm like, I just, I, I think about it. Yeah, I think about that too. And, you know, for a long time, like, I thought the worst way to go would be drowning. But I think, like, the longer you stare at something, like, you can find beauty in it. I don't think the longer I stare at drowning, I can find beauty in it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying necessarily beauty, but, like, the longer I looked at it, like, not the better it seemed, but, like, the less bad it seemed. Right, those few seconds of pain before. Right, they might not be pleasant. No, I get it's that. It's not like you're gonna. You don't have to live with that pain. My worst fear is like almost dying, and not. That's not my worst fear. We all know my worst fear is whales, and then the second is school buses. Um, <laughs> school buses, yeah, just anything unnaturally large. Yes, because why? Wow, I just thought about this, but like you must hate blimps. Blimps, honestly, I've never come. I feel like if I feel like if you stood close enough to one and realized how massive they are, you'd. Fucking I've never shit come yourself. like physically, like I've never even seen a blimp. I don't think over me in the sky. So all I can yeah. go off of is the show in the Night Garden. For anyone who watched In the Night Garden, it was a traumatizing show, but I loved it. I can only think of that blimp, and it was small size for a blimp. And then um, think about Up. Think about the blimp and Up. Up isn't a blimp. Oh, that blimp. I was like, that's a house, Josh. The whole point is that it's a house. Um, (laughs) They had a museum in that blimp. Like, think about how massive that was. I don't think I'd like staying next to a blimp. Correct. I don't like walking to... Granted, that plane was smaller. Remember when when we went to Cuba, we had to, like, walk outside and walk up the stairs to a plane. It was a smaller plane. But I don't like walking out and there being bigger planes because even if the engine's not on i just think about being sucked right into that circular thing (laughs) yeah they can be scary not as scary as existentialism which as it turns out not that scary when approached the right way with all that said we have arrived at the end of today's episode josh thank you so much for joining me today thanks for having me like i i think i learned a lot i had a great time it was a blast Is there anything you want to plug before we go? I'd like to give a shout out to all the welders and engineers that could be possibly listening. Um, I know that they're a different thing, and I apologize for everything Jordan has said. 
I take back none of it. <laughs> Listeners, thank you so much for listening. My name is Jordan Preston, coming to you from the back of the class. And if A, engineers are all welders, and B, you went to school for engineering, then C, you are indeed simply a glorified welding machine. Fuck. <laughs> I don't make the rules, I just enforce them. What do I say? Excuse me, class. <laughs> Flash! <laughs> <laughs>